Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. Uh, I received a phone call uh, a few days ago from somebody I used to know from the world of magazines, an editor, in fact, uh, of magazines, not somebody uh, who engages or has any kind of experience of photography. And they'd rung me up because they wanted a little bit of advice. They'd moved into a house down in Devon and found that one of their neighbours was a photographer. Uh, he was in his 90s and, and has sadly uh, passed. And the uh, wife of the photographer has been left with a huge archive of material and doesn't know what to do with it. And so my friend had suggested that um, she'd try and, try and help out and that uh, she'd give me a ring and, and kind of see what I said. My friend's initial hope was that this work would be published in a book, it would be an exhibition, um, or perhaps even an institution would take this work on. The photographer in question is a photographer uh, called Anthony Blake, uh, a food photographer, travel kind of lifestyle photographer, very much from the 1970s and 80s. Um, a photographer, actually, that if you've worked in magazines during that period, you were probably aware of because the Anthony Blake archive was an archive that you regularly turned to if you needed food-based or travel-based photography, but you weren't in a position to commission it. In many ways, Anthony's work was a kind of a continuation or an English version of the great French food photographer Robert Fresson. You can't find Fresson's work now. Um, I've tried, um, but he really was a pioneer in food photography, which in itself raises, I suppose, a discussion point, which is how rarely food photography is spoken about, exhibited, uh, published. Of course, there was the Susan Bright book. I think it was last year that was published on the history of food photography. But that pretty much is it, which to me seems strange. Anyway, I spoke to my friend about what could be done with this archive, the majority of which, and we're talking here 30,000-odd um, images, uh, the majority of that work it exists as colour transparencies and black and white negatives and contact sheets, so no digital artefact. And... There was a part of the archive which evidently had been sold off, and then this is the archive that remains. It's a very common story, and it's a story I hear a lot, which is photographers who've had incredible careers through the 1970s, 80s, perhaps through the 1960s. Also, we spoke about Colin Jones, who joined us uh, only a few episodes ago, and the fact that his archive is now being picked up upon. But anyway, there are an awful lot of photographers out there who have these bodies of work which are incredibly valuable to them. And I would argue very valuable to us as photographic artefacts, as uh, social history. And the particular person, Anthony's um, wife, is faced with this issue as to does she just throw them away? I saw uh, an article recently by Jill Fermanovsky, a music photographer in the UK, and she was talking about the problem that we have with the archive of music photography and where is it going to go? 
I saw recently, obviously, that uh, Daniel Meadows um, has his work. I think it's going to um, the Bodleian in Oxford. A few years ago, um, the very sadly departed uh, Pete James at the Birmingham Library was trying to build an archive. I know he had Paul Hill's work there. and I know he also had Daniel Meadows and, and I'm sure a lot of others because there was a great archive of photography there going right back to Sir Benjamin Stone. But cuts meant that that work was no longer going to be accessible and so it therefore sits in cabinets. I've had similar discussions with the Centre for Creative Photography in Arizona concerning Bill Jay's work. They also have Avedon's work. They have Eugene Smith's. They also have Ansel Adams there. But I can tell you, having tried to deal with them, it's impossibly difficult to get to the right person or to speak to the right person to get access to the material. And talking to Bill Jay's uh, daughters, they haven't even been able to get to see their father's archive. The reason I'm given for that is financial. The funding just isn't there. And I suppose going back to that conversation I had with my friend, I had to give them the news that I wasn't aware of any institution that was in a situation to take on this archive. Similarly, it was going to be very difficult to produce an exhibition or a book of this work without somebody sitting down and working through it, actually finding whether or not there was work there which has historical value and also contemporary relevance for an audience or not. After a long conversation, she decided that she's going to take it up. She's going to give it a go and I gave her some strategies which she could utilise to try and at least see whether or not there is an audience and an interest for this work. I really hope there is. I was really tempted myself to actually offer to go down there. There's nothing I enjoy more than going through archives of work which have not been touched for a long, long time. Uh, I did a very similar thing for uh, John Hedgeco, a photographer that many of you will know from his how-to manual books, but also somebody who was a photographer for a lot of magazines through the 1960s and also the 1970s. I also did the same thing for Sean Flynn, a great friend of, uh, well, Errol Flynn's son, uh, and also a good friend of Tim Page and Sean's uh, work in Cambodia and Vietnam before he... Um, disappeared out there so I love doing that and I'm sure many of you do I suppose where I am with that one this week is you know if you are in a situation that you've got an archive that it needs looking after try and find somebody um, who's going to be as excited about your work as you are to go through that work and if you're somebody out there thinking I'd really like to work on that I'd really love to work on a, a curation or setting something up or, you know, great example. And I talk about it all the time. Tish Murtha's work, the great work that Ella Murtha has done around that, of bringing that into the public consciousness. It can be done. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of commitment, and it takes a lot of passion. But I really think it's important and it could be incredibly rewarding. 
this week, the photographer who's going to share with us what photography means to him is Ian McKell. I've known of Ian's work for many, many years. Um, never met him and never spoken to him, actually. But we did have a, a conversation recently, which was really enjoyable. Uh, if you don't know about Ian and his work, uh, he grew up in Weymouth in Dorset on the UK coastline and began working as a seaside photographer, age 19. He went on to study graphic design uh, in Exeter before moving to London in 1979 to work as a designer. Um, photography soon took over and his first exhibition was staged in his own studio in 1984, titled Ian McKell Live, in which members of the public were invited to witness him at work as he photographed members of the Alternative Comedian Collective of that time, the comic strip, and many of the visitors to the show also. This was followed in 1985 by uh, an open workshop at the Photographer's Gallery and uh, a documentary film documenting his life. The success of these events led him to work on advertising campaigns for brands such as Smirnoff and Red Stripe, and McCall has been photographing various subcultures since the 1980s beginning with the documentation of the skinhead culture within the UK and leading on to a similar documentation of punks, blitz kids and rockabillies. Images that became his book, Fashion Forever, 30 Years of Subculture in 2004. McKell has also spent over 10 years befriending and photographing a group of New Age travellers, the result of which became his book, The New Gypsies, in 2011. He went on to collaborate with Kate Moss for V Magazine, as uh, she travelled with Mikkel and spent time with the travellers. In 2012, he released his third book, Beautiful Britain, photographs from the 1970s to the present. And in 2019, his book, New Girl Order, was published by Hoxton Mini Press, a body of work created as Mikkel spent two years immersed in a community of young female artists, documenting their unique performances, parties and personalities. He's directed commercials, pop videos, and worked on commission for the Sunday Times, Vogue Italia, Lomo Vogue, and ID uh, magazine, amongst many others. I think it's about time after all of that talk that we heard from Ian McCall. Photography to me, it means a way of life. I mean, it really all started when I was at art college um, in the 70s. Uh, yeah, I was studying graphic design. We were one day given a camera, uh, as you do as a discipline in, photo in design. Uh, you had to, you know, understand photography as an art director or whatever. Um, and um, I realised actually that I had a sort of natural uh, talent initially um, for understanding from the outset about what speeds and apertures were. In other words, there was this little technical hump that I had to get over, but I seemed to grasp that quite quickly. And quite frankly, I don't think I've ever really needed another technical question about photography since, because effectively, as long as you're making an exposure, it's all about composition and it's all about thoughts and it's all about ideas, photography. But, um, yeah, it was um, actually, while going through that process of taking photographs for the first time at art college and in combination with seeing the uh, photographic uh, library and researching photography a little bit, I came across Diane Arbus. And when I looked at Diane Arbus's work, it was so clear to me 
that although the subject matter was so incredibly strong and compelling, it was somehow telling me more about the artist, Diane Arbus, than her actual subject matter. And that was a big light bulb to me. Um, and I thought that was terribly exciting. Exeter College of Art actually at the time had a very strong fine art department, but I didn't really... So I liked the attitude of the fine art and I think secretly I felt I was a fine artist and that graphic design, as much as I loved it, I did enjoy doing graphics. I enjoyed doing concepts and art direction. I'm a good draftsman. I always enjoy doing life drawing and seeing and looking. But I realised that through photography, you could actually, that it was the same thing, that you would take, look out at the world in the three dimension. And instead of using a, a pencil or paint, I would render an image two dimensionally. And that's exactly the same with photography. So having been inspired by Diane Arbus, I actually at the same time had this opportunity of getting a job in my hometown, which is Weymouth, which is a seaside town. And I kind of realised that there was a wealth of content and this life of characters and the quirkiness of seaside towns that I grew up in and was something that I understood as an inmate, as somewhere I grew up and I wasn't looking in on it. I was actually from this place. So this idea of photography being a way of life immediately was there at my disposal. I suppose that was my luck. I was lucky enough to grow up. I grew up in a hotel. My parents were hoteliers. Um, I grew up in this sort of world of transient people coming and going, of people who were, um, you know, looking for um, escapism and desire and all those sort of great sort of... And, and also being um, a teenager at the time, um, you know, reaching um, my adulthood, um, I used the camera to tell a story, a diary, a diary of my own life. So after leaving college, um, I moved to London and got myself a job as a graphic designer. So, you know, everything was going nicely and uh, I thought this was the way forward. You know, after all, I'd been to college, done graphic design and now I've got a job as a designer. But then one day I come into work and one of the guys that I worked with was telling me how he got up in the morning in the suburbs by listening to the car engines of his neighbours and like could recognise the, the engine noise. And that was number 32 getting up and now it must be quarter to nine. So he used that as his clock for getting up in the morning. And I just realised, you know, commuting on the tube backwards and forwards from nine to five, that it just wasn't me. I, I was made redundant and as I was walking down Wardle Street back in the day, in the late 70s, I saw this board for a club called Bowie Night. So I went to this club. There was people like Boy George and Philip Salon and uh, Lee Bowery and all these sort of underground, post-punk characters. I recognised it for what it was. This was the London epicentre of the underground. This was talented young people that were about to break through and do something fantastic. I saw that in them and it inspired me. I came out of that club and that's when the idea of photography being a way of life crystallised in my mind. I also had cheap rent as well, which obviously enabled me as well. And I'd made quite a lot of money out of the photography on Weymouth Seafront. 
I went out, bought a Hasselblad camera, up the ante and start to do the portraits of the new romantics with the notion that I was going to immerse myself in this life, that I was not going to be an, in an office and then doing it part time. This was all or nothing. Wow, how that takes me back to those days walking down Wardour Street in the late 70s and early 80s. Certainly a scene that I can remember really well. Um, Fantastic passion there from Ian. He's been doing it a long time, but there's no doubt listening to him that he's as excited now about creating work as he was when he first started out. Also interesting, I think, to hear him talking about art directors needing to understand photography, something we've spoken about previously and certainly something that Jeff Waring Uh, another art director spoke about in the podcast that he contributed to. Also interesting, that thing about rejecting suburbia. It reminds me of a moment when I decided that I was going to make a life-changing decision. And it was based on the fact of sitting in a pub and sitting and seeing everybody around in couples, looking at each other and having nothing to say other than whether or not they were going to have the Mississippi mud pie. I kind of realised that um, that future wasn't going to be for me. Anyway, um, I'm recording this uh, podcast uh, just before I head off to Vancouver for a week. So um, when you're hearing this, that's where I'll be. Um, I'll be teaching out there at Van Arts with some really great people in um, downtown Vancouver, hoping to meet up with some people as well. And uh, we'll be having a screening of the Bill J. Do Not Bend film uh, on the Thursday evening, actually. Um, and there'll be a Q&A with uh, Ian McGuffey, who's a bit of a kind of voice of photography in Vancouver. Also a very good friend of Fred Herzog's, who I'm also hoping to catch up with. So uh, a busy time for me, hence getting the podcast done nice and early. Um, Travelling abroad, um, always full of excitement. But the one thing you must always do, take care. Thank you.